Well, if you would look with me in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. It's one of those great declarations of Jesus' deity. Now today, December the 20th, On 1946, the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, first came out. It came out about a month before Cecil and Sue Anna Chapman were married. So y'all probably went to that movie as one of your last dates before you got married. 69 years ago. In fact, I'm taping it this afternoon. In that movie, George Bailey... Uh, finds it hard to believe that his small hometown of Bedford Falls can provide him the kind of life he needs to have a life of significance. In fact, he tells his pop in the movie, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. I want to do something big, something important. Now that story, that film has resonated for some 69 years, because there's a couple of assumptions that George Bailey makes that each one of us identifies with, if we're truly honest. That first assumption that he makes is that the significant life, the life that matters, resides outside of us. We need our circumstances to change. We need our location to change in order to have that significant life. The second assumption he makes is that once we find that, we'll have meaning, we'll have happiness and satisfaction, contentment, fulfillment. We'll no longer be restless. You know, keep in mind, we tend to be in awe. That is, we tend to set our affections on those things that we believe will truly give us life. And what I mean by life there is identity and meaning and purpose and pleasure. And misplaced awe, misplaced affections always lead uh, to an identity vacuum. And when we have that identity vacuum, we will fill it up with something in our lives. And we look to the horizontal plane to do it. That's the human dilemma. And and here's the even more uh, tragic aspect to this. We can't find it horizontally. What we need to fill that void, eternity has been set in the hearts of men, Ecclesiastes 3, can can only be provided vertically. And so what we do in our idolatrous state, the sinful state, is we, we look to things like achievement to fill that void, to to find life. In other words, I am what I achieve in this life. Or we look to 
uh, pleasures. We look to relationships. I am uh, who accepts me. My identity is based on who accepts me, who likes me. Or we look to, to other things like our material possessions. I am what I own. All of those things are an attempt to find life. If these ideas in George Bailey's head and our heads are a balloon, then John 1, verses 1 to 18, is the needle meant to pop that balloon. So what we've seen in John chapter 1 thus far is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is everything we need for life and godliness. That's why the Apostle Paul himself said, we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We saw early in verse 3 that he is our creator addressing our meism. What is meism? It's the worship of self. But in John chapter 1, verse 3, we see that he created everything for himself. And so what that truth does is it critiques, it disciplines our meism. We've also seen that he is the word of God taking on our ignorance. He is the life of God addressing our spiritual lifelessness. He is the light of God overcoming the darkness that's in all of our hearts. He is everything we need for life and godliness. What the Gospel of John is intended to do and what this prologue is intended to do is to awaken us to the glory of the Son of God so that we might find our awe, our wonder, our hope, our delight, our pleasure in Him, our Creator and Redeemer. God forgetting self-sovereignty. That's our biggest dilemma. God forgiving self-sovereignty is destructive to us. It's destructive to our marriages. It's destructive to our parenting. It's destructive to our lives. God forgetting self-sovereignty. And what God does in His zeal for His glory and for our good is he seeks to rescue us from that. And this is one of those rescue texts. John, by the Spirit, is seeking to rescue us from God-forgetting self-sovereignty. And so we've seen that the Son of God is our Creator. We've seen that He is the Word of God for us. He's the life of God to us. He is the light of God for us. Today we see He is the very glory of God for us and our salvation. In fact, we see in verse 14 the glory of Jesus, the Son of God's very grace and truth. Look with me in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. And so the Word who eternally exists and is the creator of all that exists, became flesh. I mean, that's remarkable language. Sometimes we allow our familiarity with a reality to breed dullness. The creator, the word of God, the eternal son of God became flesh. And this is the most concise statement in all the scripture on the incarnation. 
Now, where does that word incarnation come from? It's a Latin word, incarnatio, which literally means in the flesh. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, came in the, the flesh. It's what we call, let me give you a fancy term, hypostatic union. It refers to the miraculous act of God affected by the Holy Spirit, whereby the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, unites to Himself a complete human nature, yet without sin. That's the Incarnation. In other words, the Son of God did not come into existence at the Incarnation. He is the eternal Son of God, but now, at the Incarnation, God and man are united forevermore. God and man are united in this one person, the Son of God. And not only does He tell us that the Word became flesh, it says He dwelt among us. Now, the English translations here, and I, I don't know why they do this, because we miss a very important truth by the translation. But the English translations miss the fact that that word dwelt is the verb form of the Greek word tabernacle. It's picked up from Exodus 25 to 40. You know, God instructed His people to build a tabernacle according to the pattern on the mount. This is the verb form of that word tabernacle. So you could literally translate that, the Word of God became flesh and tabernacled among us. And for the, the Jew, this would have certainly called to mind the tabernacle in Exodus 25 to 40, where God dwelled with His covenant people. In fact, you see here, that's confirmed by the use of this word, glory. In fact, at the end of Exodus 40, when the tabernacle had been built, listen to what Moses writes. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All right? That's the same word, glory, that we see here in John 1. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You know what John is telling us here? That very glory is found in a person, the Son of God. And what that's referring to is the Holy of Holies. That's where God's Shekinah presence, His, His special revelatory presence dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And now John is telling us that that glory cloud is mediated through the eternal Son of God. And now this Son is tabernacling among us. We no longer have to enter the Holy of Holies because the Holy of Holies is found in a person. And we see that especially when Jesus Christ was on the cross. And He, he declared, it is finished. He made His atoning work and he accomplished his atoning work. And what happened? The veil in the temple was ripped in two. And what did that signal? It signaled that we now had access to the Holy of Holies 
But what it also communicates is that the Holy of Holies is about to go unleashed on the planet. The very Holy of Holies that is found, the glory that is found in the Son of God. John is communicating a great deal here when he says, the Word of God dwelt among us and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I want you to note here that he says this glory cloud, which is found in a person, is filled with grace and truth. Now, we know what grace is because we experience it on the horizontal plane. Grace is someone giving you uh, a gift that you do not deserve. One of the things we don't always emphasize is that when grace is given, the person who's giving that gift is absorbing a debt that you owe. So grace here is absorbed in God the Father by sending His Son who will ultimately die so that we don't have to die. That is, so that we don't have to be judged. And He connects this language of grace with truth. Now, why was that important? Well... Many believe, and I believe it to be correct, that he is linking grace and truth here with Jesus, and those that is a fulfillment of what Exodus 33 and 34 speak to when Moses says, show me your ways, show me your glory, and God's response to Moses is this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. Now, that's interesting. The Lord is preaching the Lord. There's a plurality there. The Lord proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Many scholars believe because that word steadfast love, which is the word hesed, and it is... uh, It is... Translated in the Greek by the word charis, grace. And that word faithfulness, emmet, is translated by the word for truth. That we see here, grace and truth. And here, John is telling us that the Lord that is proclaimed here by Yahweh is the Son of God. The one who is full of grace and truth. So he's linking, he is saying that Exodus 34 is fulfilled in the Son of God. And it's very um, apparent how often these two couplets travel together. For instance, in Proverbs 16.6, I could give you over 20 of these. There's over 20 of these that we could give as an example. But listen to Proverbs 16.6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Those are the same words. Moses said, show me your way, show me your glory. And the Lord says, he proclaims the Lord, he says, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. By this steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Isn't that interesting? God atones for our iniquity by his steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness correspond to grace and truth. Grace and truth is found in a person, the Son of God. That's what we're saying. Or you could look at another text, Psalm 25, where he says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. 
all the paths of the Lord. In other words, everything the Lord, Yahweh, does is by this steadfast love and faithfulness. And now, John is telling us that this very Son of God, who is full of grace and truth, is that path. God's steadfast love and faithfulness is fulfilled in a person, the eternal Son of God. You might be full of sin, and you are, but He is full of grace. You might be full of ignorance and deceit, but He is full of truth. That's what John is speaking to us. He is seeking to rescue us from our self-serving, God-forgetting self-sovereignty. Jesus Christ is the one who is full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the one that we find our life and our hope in. So we've seen the glory of Jesus' grace and truth. We see, secondly, the glory of His person in verse 15. John, that's John the Baptist, bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. Now, John the Baptist is one of the most important figures in the Bible. He is mentioned 89 times in the New Testament. 89 times. He is the last Old Testament, you could say, Old Covenant prophet. And he was the first one to announce the coming of the kingdom of Christ and Christ himself. And yet, here, he insists that the one he was proclaiming ranks before him because he was before him. Now, if you think about it, that... That's quite intriguing because John the Baptist was actually older than Jesus in time. He was born before Jesus. In fact, his ministry preceded Jesus' ministry. So what does he mean here when he says, he was before me? And why would John the Baptist, of all the things he could have said about Jesus, why would he say this? Well, it's simply this. He is saying that Jesus is the eternal Lord. He is the eternal God, and we stand under Him. We are accountable to Him as His creatures. We owe all allegiance, all worship, all adoration is due to Him. God created us to worship, and each one of us worships. But John recognizes, the Spirit certainly recognizes, that our deepest dilemma is that we have misplaced worship. We have set our hopes, we have set uh, our affections on idols. And John is seeking to rescue us. Jesus is the one that we owe all allegiance and adoration to. He is worthy of this because of the glory of His person. He is worthy of this because of the glory of His grace and truth. But we also see He is worthy of this because of the glory of His provision. Look with me in verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
He is, as I've said, the Word to address our ignorance. He is the life to address our lifelessness. And as Christians, even our dullness, our boredom in our walks. He is the light of God to address the darkness that still pervades our minds and our affections. He is the very glory of God. He is the fullness of cleansing power. John, 1 John tells us that for the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. He is the fullness of pardon. Uh, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it says in verse 12, those who receive him, he gives the right to experience and have this fullness as the sons and daughters of God, which John says is grace upon grace. Literally, uh, grace in the place of grace. When one grace has been given, another grace is there to take its place. Now, when you, here's the irony of the Christian life as you grow in grace, you grow in your understanding of your indwelling sin. When God is sanctifying us and maturing us, He continually exposes sin that we weren't even um, cognizant was there. He'll put us in circumstances. So by His providence, He exposes that sin. As we read the Word of God, He exposes that sin. And what does the believer do when he or she recognizes that sin, the believer flees to Christ where there is grace upon grace. You know what that does? It does not give you a ticket to sin. It changes you. It makes you hate your sin. And it makes you love Him more and more. As He excites you insights you, provokes you to love and gratitude. As Jonathan Edwards says in a book called The Religious Affections, one of the most important Christian books apart from Scripture that have ever that has ever been written. Jonathan Edwards says, nothing is more manifest than that the things of religion that take hold of men's souls no further than what affects them. And what John is seeking to do by the Spirit is to affect us to Jesus. He is seeking to awaken us to His glory so that we will love Him, so that we will be grateful for Him, so that we will worship Him. And bound up in that is our capacity to flourish as human beings. Well, notice as well that in verse 17, that it's not by the law that this can come about. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, when we talk about the law, we have to remember that the law was a revelation of God's character. So the law is good. The law is good. It's a revelation of God's character, but as a result of it being a revelation of God's character, it is also a revelation of God's standard. And so what the law was intended to do was to show the people of God they needed a Messiah. They needed a Savior because no one could keep the law. The law is like a mirror. You look into the mirror and the, the mirror does not brush your teeth or brush your hair or wash your face. The mirror shows you need 
to wash your, your face and brush your hair and brush your teeth, but it doesn't do it for you. That's what the law did. The law was intended to serve as a tutor to point us as a shadow to the substance Jesus Christ. As John Bunyan so eloquently said it in a poem, do this, do that. The law commands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. A different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Isn't that beautiful? A different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's what John is saying here. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law that was given through Moses revealed we need grace. We need truth. Because we're sinners and we are deceitful to the core. And John says this grace for our sin, this truth for our deceit and our ignorance is found in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And now John's going to bring this to the climax. We have seen the glory of His grace and truth. We've seen the glory of His person and of His provision. But notice we see the glory of His revelation in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Now we begin this prologue in John 1.1 where he writes, The Word was with God and the Word was God. So we see equality yet distinction in the Godhead. There is a plurality in the Godhead. Uh, this past two weeks, there was a, a, a professor at Wheaton College who, who proclaimed that the Muslims worship the same God as Christians. And I was speaking to a man in the gym trying to evangelize him and, and, I, and, and I made that point to this man. And he said, well, we do worship the same God. There's only one God. I said, have you ever thought about the fact that there are false gods? Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He said, well, you can't find that in the Old Testament. I said, oh, contraire. We'll have to continue that conversation. We certainly see it in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is like a richly furnished but a dimly lighted chamber. That's what B.B. Warfield teaches us. But in the New Testament, we see the light shining on that richly furnished and dimly lighted chamber. And here we see that Jesus Christ is God who is at the Father's side who is God. But there's only one God. Equality and yet distinction. And this God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Now, we know under the Old Covenant, Moses' interaction with God at the burning bush is one of those intimate uh, examples you see of the people of God encountering or being encountered by the living God. And yet that does not even compare with what we have in Jesus. For instance, in Exodus 33, going back to that passage I mentioned, listen to what uh, Moses describes. He says in verse 18, Please show me your glory. 
And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But, verse 20, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. Now, the reason for our inability to see God is twofold. First, as John 4 teaches us, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men, as the children's catechism teaches us. The second reason we cannot see God is because of our sin. Our relationship with God has been broken, has been severed because of our sin. So here's the point. In the Son of God who became flesh, God overcomes both obstacles. Jesus Christ became a man. And now, as he says in John chapter 14, he says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So that is the first way he overcomes that obstacle. God puts on human flesh. In fact, the word here, verse 18 He has made him known. That's where we get the word exegesis. You ever heard that word exegesis? It means to unfold. It means to explain. God the Son exegetes, unfolds, explains, reveals the Father. And so putting on human flesh overcomes the first obstacle. The fact that God is a spirit. And does not have a body like men. How does he overcome the second obstacle? This brings us to the most important reason. The most important reason Jesus Christ, the Son of God, tabernacled among us. The second obstacle has to do with our sin. We are separated from God. Keep in mind, what did they do at the tabernacle and later the temple? They offered sacrifices to propitiate the wrath of God so that they could commune with God. In God's grace, Jesus Christ offers the ultimate and final sacrifice. You say, that's not in this text. Everything written in John is intended to show us why the Son of God must die on a cross. Everything written in John is intended to show us why we need a Messiah who will be crucified in our place and be raised from the grave in our place. And that's why the cross is the greatest display of the glory of God. In fact, in John chapter 12, um, in in, in one of the most beautiful and glorious passages in in all of John, and in fact, you could say all of the Bible, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Isn't that interesting? It's in the Son of God that we behold the glory of God. And here, he is saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man, the Son of God, to be glorified. How will he be glorified? Through his cross. That's what he's referring to. And it's in beholding The glory of God and His tabernacling grace in Jesus' cross that we are saved. Not just saved from the penalty of sin, 
But as believers saved from the power of sin, as we behold Him, as we adore Him, as we, as we reverence Him, as our hearts are continuously and progressively melted by the tabernacling grace of the Son of God, we are changed. In fact, it is not an overstatement to say that is the entire purpose of the Gospel of John. The night before he, crucified, he was crucified in John 17, here's what he prays. Father, I desire that they, who's he referring to there? You and me. That they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Have you ever beheld the wonder of something and, and it changed you? Um, it gripped you to the very core? I can remember going to see Rocky Three. And when I walked out of that theater, I had committed my life to becoming a heavyweight boxing champion of the world. I can remember going to Broadway when I was 14 years old and I saw a play, Joseph and the Maze of Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I walked out of that Broadway play committed to becoming a Broadway star. I, I can remember watching the Olympics and seeing ice skating. No. <laughs> or going to the Super Bowl. My first Super Bowl, I went to a Super Bowl in 10th grade. And I was so overcome by the splendor that I wanted to become an NFL player, an NFL star. All that is transient. All of that is fleeting. That is just shadow glories. But there's something about it that teaches us something. As we behold the glory of the Son of God, we become like Him. We desire to know Him. We desire to make His name known to the nations. That's exactly what Paul says is behind sanctification. In a verse that is one of the most important verses when it comes to sanctification, here's what he says. And we all, with unveiled face, that's referring to Christians, beholding the glory of the Lord, that is Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you see how God works there in a triune way? The Spirit gives us eyes to behold, gives us hearts to feel, stirs our affections towards this God, this Son of glory, and we become like Him. That's the all rescue that the Spirit of God is intending by this passage. That's the point of this text. That's the point of this book. That's the point of Christmas to awaken us. If you're cold today, if you're bored today, and listless today in your walk. You need a new encounter 
with the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's why He's come. That we might behold the Word. Behold the light. Behold the life. Behold the very glory of God in the face of the Son. It's the purpose of life. Indeed, it's the way to life. Let's pray.